I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 86th Texas Legislature. This week, oil's well that ends well. In a state that produces more crude and more natural gas than every other, is it any wonder the sun still rises and sets on the price of West Texas Intermediate? Part of it is cultural, to be sure. 118 years after Spindletop, the Texas brand is inevitably and inextricably tied to gushers, dry holes, rig counts, and wildcatters. But mostly, it's pure economics. Revenue directly generated through oil and gas extraction is 8.5% of our gross state product. Add in the indirect benefits of oil and gas activity, and that contribution to Texas's GSP jumps to nearly 30% as estimated, perhaps generously, by industry advocates. Nearly 350,000 jobs in a state with a historically low unemployment rate, below the nation's unemployment rate, are said to be tied to oil and gas. $102 billion in tax base for purposes of public education funding comes courtesy of oil and gas. In 2018, state and local taxes paid by the Texas oil and gas industry was just over $14 billion, the second highest amount in the last 12 years. Oil production value in Texas last year was nearly $85 billion. Gas production value was nearly $24 billion. With 600,000 royalty owners, wealth has been created that undeniably funds good works and trickles down or bubbles up to other sectors of the economy. But of course, the story doesn't stop there. Every upside of any kind has a real or perceived downside, and energy has several. While no one disputes the enormity of the industry's successes, there's always a question about the cost and who bears it. Environmental consequences, a strain on natural resources, negative impacts on physical and social infrastructure are among the red flags raised high. The price tag to, say, repair roads damaged by heavy truck traffic or the affordability of housing, the availability of housing, adjacent to one of these mammoth shale plates, or the difficulty of keeping public sector employees from leaping off to find their fortune in the oil fields of the Permian or the Eagleford. These are concerns that counties and communities are grappling with each day. So where does the state fit into the conversation? What should the regulatory environment be guardrailing the good thing we have going? My guest this week, State Representative Chris Patty thinks he knows. The Marshall Republican is chairing, for the first time, the House Energy Resources Committee. He's the lower chamber's lead on the expanding portfolio of issues related to oil and gas. We talked about the need to balance the energy industry's opportunity and its obligation when we sat down on the afternoon of April 17th, day 100 of the 140. Point of Order is supported by Encore, the largest energy delivery company in the state, providing safe, reliable, affordable electric service to more than 10 million Texans. Visit thewire.encore.com. And by Duke Energy, delivering wind, solar, and energy storage solutions to local communities throughout Texas. Learn more at duke-energy.com. And the Advanced Power Alliance, the voice of clean energy innovation and investment. From renewables to energy storage, 
APA is working to deliver power that is cleaner, cheaper, and made in Texas. More at poweralliance.org. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you know the price of oil today? You know, I haven't checked it this morning. I'll be honest with you. Evan. Isn't it the greatest thing <laughs> to be a Texan and wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is check the price of oil? Well, you know, a lot of folks do. Uh, but, you know, with it being a legislative session, uh, I have trouble keeping up with what day it is right now. A couple Evan. more so, things on your mind. Right, I mean, instead, instead of checking the price of oil, I'm going to check what the current thinking is on the rollback rate for property taxes. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a great question. Obviously, the Senate has, has done their deal. Yeah. Uh, and the House kind of deferred and let them do that uh, before we'll take up debate this next week. And I look forward to a good conversation. I think obviously right. differences still exist, and we'll have a good spirited debate, I'm sure. But, but not as interesting as energy issues. Uh, yeah, most days. It's an most, exciting most time in energy. The answer to that question, by the way, is 64 and a half bucks. That yeah. was what it was today. So that's less than it's been, but it's better than it's been also. Absolutely. What does that number mean to you when you hear that the price of West Texas Intermediate is 64 and a half bucks? As the chairman of the House Energy Resources Committee, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a great thing. And I think that the industry has shown that it could be pretty versatile. Is that, that obviously fluctuates up and down. Right. I think that the market is great. Uh, uh, rigs are working. People are working. Rig count is a good place right now. Absolutely. It certainly right. is. And when you look at where Texas is positioned, we're, we're a leader, not only in this country, but in the world. Does the, I mean, I remember in January of 20, I think it was 2016, 2016, that the price of oil dropped below 30 bucks. Right. And I remember interviewing the comptroller and it was kind of gloomy thinking about what the impact of that was on the economy. But the reality is we are better insulated today than we were a generation ago when the price of oil went down and we all went down with it, Yeah, yeah. right? The percentage that it represents of the economy overall is about a third of what it was back then. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, and, the, and the huge difference as well is I think industry is so much more innovative now in technology and they've kind of been, you know, been there, done that as far as these ups and downs in the market as well. And I think they're better able yeah. to react to that. We now. may freak out or get hair on fire, but they're like, I got this, yes, right? Low absolutely. highs and high lows. Don't, when, when it's 100 bucks, don't get overconfident and overexcited. And when it's 26 bucks, don't get underconfident. Absolutely. Right. Um, I'm thinking about the effect of the sector on the economy. We now have historically low unemployment in the state of Texas, not just below the national average, but below where it's been. The Texas Oil and Gas Association, Trade Association, lobby group for the oil and gas industry, now headed by Todd Staples, the mm -hmm. former ag commissioner, tweeted <clears throat> earlier this week that between 2015 and 2024, the pipeline industry, this is just a segment sure. of the overall industry, will have generated economic impacts of $374 billion in economic output, $212 billion in additional gross state product, contribute almost $20 billion to state and local government revenues, and sustain about 171,000 jobs. The number of jobs that oil and gas credit, uh, takes credit for, directly or indirectly, is closer to 300 and, I mean, I think it's like 350,000. So, yeah. I mean, that's, who can hear those numbers and think this is not important stuff? Yeah, no, it, it's huge stuff. And and when you start talking about the billions of dollars that you're talking about as well, right. Evan, even from, uh, even under legislative standards, that's real money. Real money, $14 billion just in 2018 alone in state and local taxes. Well, in fact, if you, yeah, so that, that's the other part of this. So if you think about what the industry has done, it's just over $14 billion in state and, local, state and local taxes paid. It's $133 billion from 2007 to 2018, so in the last 12 years. 
that $14 billion is the second highest take in state and local taxes over that period of time. Only one time was a little bit higher. It's got to be good to be the chairman of the House Energy Resources Committee at moments like that, right? Like, oh, things are going well. This is producing a lot of money. We should be – it's good. You're not trying to solve a problem right? necessarily. Yeah, and, and you know the, the funny thing is is to be such a large part of, of what we do here in Texas, yeah. we don't get a whole lot of bills through energy uh, these days. We'll have our ups and downs. We'll have our major moments in some sessions where right. we're talking about, uh, you know, frack bans or uh, different things that we've done in the past. But so many of our issues as it relates to oil and gas now are not necessarily in my committee. Where would they be? Uh, They're issues that are the challenges that we have as a result of our own success in this industry. We have infrastructure challenges. We have workforce challenges. We have all sorts of things that derive from uh, this abundant resource that we have that uh, that is fueling our economy. Well, in fact, to to, to that point, you make an excellent point because I believe you know, and I certainly was aware of this and paid attention today, that uh, Chairman James White's legislation uh, was before Ways and Means. I think he did not have a bill today that Ways and Means was looking at. This was a way – to redirect oil and gas severance taxes to pay for some of the impacts on roads right. of this oil and gas activity in these communities that are, I think, take money and send it to the counties, right, to help cover the cost of yeah. damage to roads. I believe it's that's the bill he had last session as well. That and it I thought, died in a massacre, yeah. right? It, it, yeah, yeah. it was a little late in the process as yeah. well, but it was a, a, an idea that kind of gained some momentum. But, but I believe that was just up today. And that's yeah. not in the Energy Resource Committee. That was in Ways of Meeting. Yes. And right. so, but the idea there is, is that we know that uh, this activity creates some challenges uh, as far as stress on our infrastructure, in particular in this case and with James White's bill. And so it says, hey, why don't we return at least some portion of the severance tax generated from, say, my home county of Harrison County? Let's return some portion of that right. for the sole purpose of transportation infrastructure. It just kind of makes good sense that you would send it back to the place that's kind of experiencing those challenges because we're uh, the fruits of this. Uh, this because resource. those roads are going to have to get fixed. They're going to get fixed by somebody. Otherwise, there's an unfunded mandate, right. right? And there are some people who believe that the oil and gas uh, uh, companies should be the ones to directly pay. So in this sense, it's sort of a, a little bit of a less direct way. I mean, their severance taxes are collected from them, but it's not like them writing a check to the counties. It's them going through the process of the tax collection, and then that money would get diverted. And that's certainly the case as, as it relates to the severance tax, but industry does contribute directly in a lot of areas as well. I mean, I've seen it firsthand. But you've heard of... people, let's say, say, look, if the oil and gas companies are benefiting from this activity and there are impacts to the communities in which they benefit, then they should ultimately pay the cost of those impacts. You are not sympathetic to that. Uh, no, I, I am sympathetic to it, but um, you know, I think sometimes people think, "Oh, the oil and gas companies are just getting rich, and they're you know, they're not upholding their responsibility." Aren't, aren't they getting rich? I mean, I well, won't well, say it about certainly the is, and Aren't I, they getting rich? And I don't fault anyone for getting rich. I don't fault you for for getting rich. Yeah, I went into I, journalism. Yeah, yeah, sure, I'm <laughs> getting rich. <laughs> but I got to teach you, you something know, about journalism. But, well, you, but I, you were in the media business before, weren't sh- you? Sure, still am. Yeah. Yeah. So, you getting rich in the media business? Yeah. No, I'm not getting rich at all, but I have a lot of fun. Okay, yeah, good. You, well, know, you can we, you can relate to that, right? But, fun you know, doesn't pay the light. But, but I sometimes think that yeah. uh, oil and gas probably doesn't get enough credit for for how much they prop up and how much they benefit uh, the state and the economy of the state and the world, frankly. And you know, I think some of that is their own fault. And, and we've had discussions like this. You don't think I, they're telling their story? I don't think they do a good enough job in the, or haven't in the past of telling their story. Uh, because it, the critics of the industry are perfectly happy to be on every TV and radio station and as loud as can be. They'll tell their story. Abs- but absolutely. the industry doesn't want to tell its or is it too humble? What is the problem? Now, I don't. I just don't think they, they've been accustomed in the past to doing that. They just kind of do what they do and never really pay much attention to you know, 
that they should be doing as far as promoting themselves. And and I think they need to do a better job. I think they've recognized that, by the way, and they've made some efforts in the you see them more active in social media and doing other things to right. make sure people understand that in your everyday life, whether it's picking up your cell phone or or getting in your vehicle or yeah. or putting shampoo to wash your hair, almost all of these things that you touch on a daily basis are in some way the result of the oil and gas industry. It's a little bit of what the ag industry does, you know, saying you don't think that ag matters to you, but did you eat today? Right. Did Absolutely. you put on clothes today? Right. right? This is partly. The work we did. Well, to your point about social media, I, I, again, back just to Texoga. This is not going to be the Texoga cast, but <laughs> I did happen to be on uh, social media the other day and see that the Texoga social media folks were tweeting at every member. Representative Patty, mm. here is the impact of oil and gas in your district. They right. went district by district, then right. they had broken it out. So I actually pulled the sheet for your district. All right. So the economic impact of the oil and gas sector in District 9, it's about 3,500 jobs. How many people live in your district, roughly? Uh, total, well, I mean, my district would it's be this, roughly 175,000. the size of every other district. Right, so that's right. a trick question. It's like, who's buried in Grant's tomb? Right, right. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. But, you know, 3,500 jobs is not nothing. Absolutely not. You know, that's, you know, 2%, but, I mean, it's not insignificant. They're, they're, uh, Texoga, at least, is suggesting that there's about $262 million in wages that come out of oil and gas annually out of your district, um, you know, $3 billion in tax base that ultimately produces funding for public education. I mean, you know the, the analysts. So you, do you wake up in your district and think among the sectors or among the industries, among the business activity, oil and gas is significant? Or is it only a small piece in your case? Because obviously in Tom Craddock's district, it's not a small piece. Yeah. Right. It's an incredibly large piece. Has been for a long time. Right. You know, going back, my home where I grew up in Panola County in Carthage, uh, Evan, our, our radio station there, call letters are KGAS, KGAS. Yeah. Uh, it, we were once the natural capital, natural gas capital of the world. Right. Uh, and and we still produce a heck of a lot of it. And so, you know, our people have been accustomed to that activity for a long time, which has been interesting as you've seen over time. Uh, activity, say in the Metroplex, when we had a lot of. Well, the Barnett Shale, right, Shell, right. where people weren't accustomed. Or the, or the Eagleford yeah, in South Texas, They weren't right? accustomed yeah. to that activity, and so it created challenges. But, you know, for us, if if we see that activity, we see trucks running up and down the road, it just looks like money. It's no, it is that right? <laughs> but, you know, if you try to get from one end of your district to the other and those trucks are on those roads, sure. that's one of the, I mean, that is, again, we'll come back to the, to the challenges. Um, the benefits I talked about, whether it's statewide or in your district, what is the state's role in that conversation? What is the state's interest? Well, I think I know what the state's interest is. The state would like to keep a good thing going. Right. 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 If it, if it can. But what is the proper role of the state in allowing oil and gas to do what it does and needs to do to produce that benefit? Is it doing something affirmatively or is it avoiding doing something in the negative, staying the heck out of the way? Like what from a regulatory environment standpoint, what is the state's interest in this? I think primarily it's it's not doing anything negative. Yeah, you know, as it would be the case in any other industry, I don't think government should be putting unnecessary impediments in the way of, of the market working here. I think it's also a part of the discussion when we talk about alternative energies and wind and solar and all those things, which I'm for all of the above. Uh, you know, the roles of government there should be to to allow the market to work, not artificially prop up one particular type of energy over another. So don't don't pick winners and losers. Absolutely not. Let, let, let the market the mar- work. Let the market work. Absolutely. There are some people in the oil and gas industry, frankly, in the industry, uh, energy industry broadly, who think actually regulation can be a good thing and that mm-hmm. there are ways in which regulation, smart regulation, thoughtful regulation 
keeps us out of harm's way, sure. keeps us out of trouble. Yeah, you absolutely. for that. You for that. No, absolutely. I think that there are uh, we, we are necessary. Whether it's uh, addressing environmental concerns, yeah. uh, you know, safety uh, concerns, it, it, it is our role to step in and make sure that that's there. Uh, to make sure that there is adequate oversight and regulation of industries. That is our yeah. role. Do you think the Railroad Commission, which is mm-hmm. not aptly named in the sense that mm-hmm. it's not about trains, of course, but it's about energy regulation, do you think they do a good job of finding that balance? I think they do a great job. And, and you know, Railroad Commission is celebrating 100 years this year. I just did a resolution on the floor the other day. For yeah. They are looked to around the world as kind of the gold standard uh, as a regulator of this industry, I think they've done a great job for a long time, and they continue right. to uh, to get even better and evolve as the industry involves. You understand that the criticism sometimes, and it may very well be fair or unfair. I don't pick that. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't make a decision about that. Of the Ra- railroad commission and of the regulatory environment generally in Texas is that sometimes it seems as if it works for industry and not for us. Right. Talk about that. Well, you know, I, I, sure, I'm, I'm sure some think that. They probably think the same thing about TCEQ and any number of agencies oh, I, that we oh, could run through. Fact check true. Uh, it depends on which side you're on and, and whether or not you got the desired result that you wanted. And so yeah, I, I think overall, I mean, are they going to be perfect all the time? No, no one is. Right. Uh, but uh, but by and large, I think they do a great you job. You do feel like they have our backs, regular Texans. I do. I think they, when you talk about public safety in particular, yeah. I think they absolutely do. Good. Uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, not a whole lot coming through your committee on energy. Mm-hmm. This is a session where, generally speaking, if you're not talking about public aid or property taxes, which are related but separate but really related, sure, that's what's roadblocked this whole agenda this session. If you're not talking about those things, how do you even get the attention of anybody up the street? Now, the thing about it is being ignored is the same as being left alone. Maybe that's a good <laughs> thing. But I wonder if it's been hard for you to carry – this is your first session as chair of this committee – to carry things that you need to carry forward, forward in an environment in which everybody is focused on public ed and property taxes. I haven't found it to be difficult at all. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I'm not one that says, "Hey, let's just let's just move bills for the sake of moving bills." Either if it's good policy, it's good policy. Right. And there's no major earth-shattering thing that's coming through there. So there's uh, no significant initiative, or two initiatives, or three initiatives. You know, sometimes even if a sort of top-line issue, healthcare, is not the issue this session, the way water was in 2013 or transportation was in 2015 or public ed is this session. You may have a subset of that issue that actually rises. So healthcare wasn't the issue of last session, but maternal mortality became a thing that everybody talked about. So there's not a sub issue related to energy that is kind of the one driver of your work this session? No, I I think there are some some sub issues that are incredibly important that we, we really need to focus on. One of those being produced water, which is the water during the fracking process, right. there, there is water, uh, wastewater, if you want to term it that, that, that is produced from that, that you have to dispose of in some way. Right, right. now, one of the methods, of course, is to put that in, you know, we have disposal wells that uh, dispose of that. Back There's the a right lot now. of discussion about how do we potentially incentivize uh, recycling of that water. So re- reuse has been a big re- conversation. Recycling, reuse, right, yeah. is, yeah. but there's no... The challenge there is there's not a one-size-fits-all. Uh, right. What works in the Permian doesn't necessarily work in East Texas or right. doesn't necessarily work in the Eagleford. So you, it's very difficult for us to decide here in Austin, okay, what's the proper way to do that? It really right. depends on the circumstances you're in as far mm, as how that much sounds like you, That sounds like local control. Yeah. Uh, the, I think it, there has to be at least flexibility at a minimum to right. make sure that it can be done the proper way in the Permian and at the same time be done in, in whatever way it may right. need to be done. So, so that might, I mean, that's not a terribly sexy issue, but it's obviously an important issue. But there's, It's incredible. But, but so that's the that's one you would cite. What, what else is sort of the big yeah. on well, your Well, and I would tell screen? you, too, that on yeah. the produced water piece, that unless you have disposal of some sorts, and, and I would include recycling or reuse in that as well, unless you can do something with that water that's produced, you can't 
have production. And so at some point, if we don't address the produced water issue— It's actually critical to it, the functioning actually, of the industry. It actually will, will limit the, the production that we can do in the state, uh, which ultimately would have a tremendous impact. And so it is a critical issue that we don't often talk a whole lot about, but yeah. we're beginning to talk a whole lot more about, yeah. that we do need to get a handle on ultimately. The, the, the question—back to the question of the economic impact and w whether the regulatory environment or any other issues negatively impact the ability of the— uh, the industry to do what it does. It is often said that oil and gas activity in Texas is volatile, right? The volatility of the industry is a feature of it. Right. You stipulate that, right? Yeah. It's sort of up and down. Right. It happens to be up right now, but over time it's been up and down. I mean, again, that chart that Texoga sent out the other day that showed the state uh, and local ga uh, tax collections from oil and gas is kind of up and down, right? The uh, beginning of the session on the public ed uh, public ed being the issue that everybody's talking about. Governor said at one point, well, we need more money for public ed. Maybe we should redirect some of those very same oil and gas severance taxes to a fund that would uh, be set aside for public education funding. The comptroller didn't much like that. The comptroller said it wasn't a very wise idea because of the extreme volatility in oil and gas. Anything is more reliable than oil and gas, he said. Do you agree with that? Well, I mean, obviously it does have its ups and downs. I mean, I think we're in a period of tremendous growth, and I think if we're, for the foreseeable future we're going to see unprecedented uh, growth in production. Right. Uh, when you look at the next 8 to 10 years, I mean, you can see whether it be the acquisitions you're seeing, uh, you know, other folks positioning, particularly in the Permian right now, uh, this is not going to end anytime soon. Right. Uh, and, 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 of course, it does beg the question, as we, if we're tremendous, you know, we got – say 1.7 billion or so, and don't quote me on that number, going in from severance tax on an annual basis. Some would say that uh, when right. you look at folks, particularly out in the West Texas, they say that number could be two, three, four times that uh, in, in the very near term. Well, that seems, like a pretty, that seems reliable, at least in the short term. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and if that starts happening, you certainly have to have this discussion about, okay, do we need $12 billion in a rainy day fund? And then all of a sudden, we're going to start taking in two, three, four times what we're taking in today. All of a sudden, we've got tons of money being well, pumped into Well, the controller almost complained. He didn't actually complain because who would complain about this? But he almost complained at the beginning of the session that we're going to end the biennium at $15 billion or more in the rainy day fund if we don't figure out how to get some of that money out there. Right. He's been saying that himself. Now, again, the same controller who said, oh, you know, volatility and everything else, when he did the revenue estimate revise in the midpoint of last year – he pointed out that oil and gas production tax collections exceeded the previous year's totals by 50 percent. So it right. may be unreliable, but it's also – he even he acknowledges it's kind of skyrocketing. Yeah, no, right? absolutely. Certainly – So again, what should happen to that money, Chairman? Yeah. Well, I mean if uh, it ends up being, like you say, if it's 1.7 now and it goes to 3 or yeah, 4. Yeah, all of a sudden it's 3 or 4. What do we do with that money? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great question. I mean you know, I think some discussions have begun at this point, but – I think we need to get pretty serious about that discussion in, in the near term because I think it's going to happen. And, yeah. and, you know, I think even industry would say, and they're open to all sorts of ideas because they don't mind. They would tell you today, we don't mind paying that money that we pay today, but gosh, we'd sure like something to be happening with that money. At the same time, we're looking at educational challenges, transportational challenges. Well, that's the point. And they're saying, yeah. gosh, you know, let's put this money to work. And the, the House passed a budget. I mean, we're obviously still not in the ninth inning of the budget discussions yet even, right? You have to go to conference. I mean, there's a lot that's going to happen. But the budget that you all passed was roughly $250 billion. I mean, it's a mm -hmm. significant amount of money. And yet not enough, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. yet not enough. There are still things that are not going to get done. Right. And if all of a sudden a couple billion dollars just freed up, fell out of the pants pocket of the oil and gas industry as a consequence of what you're talking about, boy, that would be great to apply to any number of other things up here, people who have their hands out, right? Right. right. Well, I do think it's something that 
we've got to figure out how we best use this. I, I also am right. in favor of the idea, you know, the comptroller floated out in the last session or so, the idea of this legacy fund uh, that would be set up, a kind of a separate piece that, uh, that would begin to grow right. almost like an endowment. You'd have basically a floor that you couldn't go below right. in a rainy day. I think it was like $7.5 billion. Right. And then the balance of that would be effectively invested right. with a return on that investment. Yeah, and because right now we have that money. Not only do we have too much money in there, uh, it's it's earning next to nothing uh, right. as well. And so the idea was, hey, let's create this additional fund that overall, if you look out 15, 20 years from now and you look at the modeling at it, it's spitting off billions of dollars that we could then maybe direct towards long-term liabilities like pensions, right. for example. Yeah, uh, Some things that would really free up some dollars and help us solidify some of those challenges that we're going to be facing. The fact is that all gas service taxes go to two places right now. One is into the rainy day fund, but the other is a diversion into the state highway fund, right? right. That's, that's right. one way, place that these tax dollars end up going. The amount of money that we're going to have to pay to keep up with congestion levels now, not to mention population growth in the state over the next 30 years is so much more than we're spending on. I mean, the, the fact is that the mechanism, I guess it was Proposition 1 and Proposition 7 in consecutive right. sessions that redirect, I mean, it's really, what was it? Nine, I think $9 billion went into transportation right. statutorily Somewhere. or something like that in this last, maybe I got that number wrong, but I think that's roughly what it was at the beginning of this session. And people say, that's a drop in the bucket what, to what you need. I mean, th that might be one potential place where this money could go. If all of a sudden we had an excess of money, it could go into the state highway fund. Right. But when you look at transportation too, it's got to be, you know, it's not just about how much money do I have today because you don't just decide to do a project today and do it tomorrow. Uh, they've oh, yeah, got to know well, that they have well that ahead revenue and, right, 10 right, years right, right. from now because these projects are long-term projects. And then that gets back to the volatility question. Absolutely. Right? So Absolutely. You, you were talking about all this incredible activity that's coming, the shale plays and you know, how the growth of all this is extraordinary. So a couple of things I, I was looking up to try to understand exactly the magnitude of the shale plays. In December, companies in the Permian were producing twice as much oil as they had four years before. The amount of oil production was double what it had been just four years earlier. And forecasters are now predicting that by 2023, it will double yet again. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's almost unfathomable yeah. to think that the activity is growing at that speed. And when, then when you think about the economic impact and the other impacts of that. Right. If you go out, and, if, and I'm sure you've not had the occasion to go out to Midland, Odessa, and a whole lot, to, not a lot of vacation spots out there, but... Uh, you go out there, and it's absolutely amazing. Well, the times I've been out there of late, it is like nothing, nothing. If you drive out there, say, from Austin, it's like nothing, 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 nothing. Holy crap. Right. Right? You right. kind of can't believe what's going on right. out there. Right? Absolutely. And there was a discussion not even just a couple of years ago about, oh, well, you know, there are these, there's, you know, all, uh, they're so reliant on this. And then, well, but then the price of oil went down in 26. Well, now maybe this is bad again. But, boy, it just seems like everything has popped back up, right? You couldn't imagine wanting to be someplace more than, than there now. Well, and again, but then it leads to all these challenges. You look at the housing challenges they have, the transportation right. infrastructure challenges they have. This school, I mean, with, with that uh, reward comes a lot of uh, a lot of downside as well. That have to be that. It's, it's amazing. And then you know the the Texas part is extraordinary. How the change is coming through these shell plays, but then there's the U.S. part, which is of course driven by the Texas part in large measure because right. we're the biggest, right? right? So we just passed Russia as the world's biggest oil producer. And we're now going to account for eight, America, by which we mean a lot of that is Texas, is going to account for 80% of the growth in global oil supply over the next seven years. I mean, we're really leading the parade. Right. And so how big can we – I mean, before this all 
I, I just don't, I don't have words to right. talk about this stuff, right? Yeah. The fact that it's this significant. I mean, there has to be a downside. There's always a downside. <laughs> so where is the downside? Well, I don't see it in the short term. Now, I mean, sure, could something could something happen? I mean, things. I mean, because it's not just about what happens in Texas or happens in the U.S. Now, this this is a a global discussion because you look at the amount of exports that we do now in, the, in countries around the world that now depend on this resource that we have so abundant. From Texas. Well, you know, right. and I sort of wonder if you're at, it's a phrase that has a couple different sharp edges around it, you know, are we too big to fail, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the price of failure of the energy industry in Texas at this point really has this massive consequence. It, it is this massive consequence for the rest of the world because if we somehow go belly up, then everybody goes belly up. It's not just about us what happens, happens sure. in the state. So you were saying housing was one of the consequences of this. So now we get to the part of the conversation where the oil industry will want to turn off the podcast. We're going to talk about <laughs> we're going to want to talk about all the stuff that, you know, quite honestly, when you have critics of this stuff, this is the sort of the litany. You have local com- communities that can't keep up with the need to pay for basic services, the strain on schools and public safety, hospitals, the fact that a lot of their employees of school districts and police forces and hospitals are being hired away by the oil industry because they can pay more. And you have all these basic services that are suddenly going wanting in these communities. You have air pollution concerns. You have concerns about water consumption. You talked about the reuse conversation. Um, in 2017, operators in the Permian consumed nearly 58 billion gallons to frack and drill, compared to 6.8 billion in 2011. So from 2011, the amount of water used to frack and drill went from 6.8 billion to 58 billion. And the forecast is nearly 130 billion in 2023, which is 19 times the amount of water Midland used in total last year. That's why the reuse and repurposing conversation. Well, is so, and I'm is glad so you went because I really want to point out that you know sometimes when we see those top line numbers, people automatically assume that we're talking about that is all fresh water, right? And the numbers you just quoted there is not fresh. That that's water, right? Uh, now, but that it's could still be, pretty. That, it could be the pretty, reci- it's still pretty. Significant. No, it's, it's significant, but yeah. that could, that's the, that's including reuse. Right. And so you're recycling some of the same water and over and over and over again. That is not fresh water. In fact, if you look at the use of fresh water across the state. Agriculture uses more water. Is, the, is the, always the biggest. Is it's still the biggest, significantly bigger. I mean that the. Right. the I mean it's, it's single digit percent uh, that oil and gas use. But you'll but you'll stipulate even if some of what I just quoted you is reuse, you will stipulate that that's a lot of water. Oh, certainly. And and that the communities that feel stressed or just feel stressed in an existential sense about the amount of water being used by industry aren't wrong to feel that way. I don't think so at all, which is exactly why I think we are, as a legislature and industry, frankly, is talking about how do we, with the development of technology, do more recycle and reuse, recognizing that does it make more sense to put this wastewater down the hole forever and ever and ever be used again, or should we be trying to figure out a way uh, with the help of technology uh, to reuse that water uh, in the process of oil and gas, but maybe returning it to our streams and rivers? Right. Uh, and, and and making it be a resource or a water supply for a local municipality or whatever the case may be. And I think industry is 100% committed to uh, those technologies as they become available. Yeah. Well, what, and you mentioned housing earlier, the fact that, you know, we I, I looked up from some reporting that we did that there was a point last year where rents were up 30% in Midland. There was so much. Uh, oh, yeah. Go try to get a hotel in Midland, Odessa. Right well, I, have, I, I heard this <laughs> phrase some years ago at the beginning of the – kind of current round of boom activity, this phrase I'd never heard before, man camps. Mm-hmm. 
where you had these tented cities out in the Permian because there was no housing. The price of a studio apartment in the Permian was like $1,200 a month. And there were not nearly enough, there was not nearly enough housing inventory or apartment inventory for the people who are going out there to seek their work and seek their fortunes. And it, it's sort of an, it's kind of a bad deal. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, it's the underside of extraordinary success. I mean, it's hard to right. be completely angry or upset mm -hmm. about it because the good success part of it is going to take part of that sting away, but it's not insignificant, you know, traffic problems, homelessness, the road stuff we talked about, the fact that many of these roads are getting chopped up by all this activity. I mean, there are legitimately consequences of success. There always are. Absolutely. Right. And we have a role in that as government to make sure that we're doing what we should be doing. But I would tell you that industry has taken upon themselves. You take the Permian alone. They've now developed in, in recent times the Permian, I think, the Strategic Partnership, PSP, we call it, yeah. which is a, is a group of, you know, some 10 or 12 of the, the major uh, operators out there that have basically come together and said, uh, certainly we want government to do their role, but we're going to figure out how it is that we could take it upon ourselves to to help address some of these issues as well. And they are very much yeah. focused on the, all the issues that we've discussed here today, whether it be housing, or right. public education, transportation infrastructure. I mean, the reality is that you have industry willing to come to the table in part because somebody has to come to the table, but also partly it's in defense. They're playing offense and they're playing defense, right? right. I mean, you had a couple of instances where you've had um, you know, energy, energy providers, producers have had situations that endangered the public safety. And they know that it is, you know, it's pay me now or pay me later. It's right. better for them to lean into their obligations to the community to avoid what could down the road be something much more, you know, cataclysmic and, and problematic for them. Right. right? No, it, well, first of all, because it's the right thing to do, right. uh, to engage and try to see if you can be a part of the solution. But, but secondly, when they're looking at their future needs, workforce being the number one issue, right. they should absolutely be focused on ways that they can help improve that because they need qualified folks to do these jobs that, right. are, that are benefiting us so great. So in some respects, the education session is also an energy session. Because absolutely. if we fix the public education system and if we provide resources to education, public and higher generally, you are preparing not just future citizens but specifically future employees. Yeah. And you're right. talking it's about education. Workforce, it's workforce development. It is, and that's why it's so critically important. We're talking about CTE and and uh, workforce training that we kind of change our mindset as a whole. That you know, success in education is not that just that you go off to great universities like I did, Texas A and M, uh, and become a doctor, lawyer, engineer. Success for a lot of these kids is going to be something else that probably relates to something like the oil and gas industry. Well, you hear often the world needs pipe fitters. Right, that's often used as this phrase to direct people away from the idea that everybody has to go to college. Right, and sometimes you prepare people to be career ready as opposed to college ready. In this case, we're literally saying the world needs pipe fitters. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah. There's something wrong, Evan, when we have a situation where we're sending more people to college than we ever have before. But at the same time, industry is saying that I've got an aging workforce that that's going to, you know, 60% of my workforce is going to retire in the next five years or so, and I don't have enough people right. in the pipeline to fill those jobs. And so we've got a disconnect between the the widgets, if you will, that we're producing in education and what the market desires. We need to make sure that we have more of a market approach in the way we're educating. I want to ask you about two aspects of this that, that I think naturally come up in the context of your being a, a conservative Well, it depends Republican. on who you ask, Kevin. Well... <laughs> I think this is I'm not the Empower Texans podcast. Okay, well, then I'm good. Then you're fine. Yeah. Okay, you come over to the lamestream media to do a podcast. I think you're probably pretty conservative. Safe bet. Um, so you're a conservative, and you are generally in line with views that the conservative wing of your party has on issues. 
is the immigration conversation an interesting conversation to have as we get to the question of the shortage in workforce, right? I mean, we often talk about, you know, we need to be tough on immigration. We need to close the border or at least secure the border in a way that people who are not here with documentation, you know, and all that. But the fact is that so much of the workforce in agriculture, so much of the workforce in construction, so much of the workforce in the hospitality industry is both documented and undocumented immigrant labor. Presumably that's the same thing in the energy industry. Right. I mean, I I don't know that specifically, but I think yeah. It's, but I mean, you go to bed at night. There's no snow on the ground. You wake up in the morning. <laughs> there's snow on the ground. You know it snowed, sure. Mr. Chairman. Sure. There sure, is sure. immigrant labor in the energy industry. Well, I, I'm I'm sure there is, and and yeah. you know whether or not it should be part of the discussion. I think, so, you know, the problem we have is we continue under this dome over just down the street here to have discussions on immigration, is that we know the solution starts with at the federal level and fixing a broken immigration system. Right. Uh, one that's not so expensive, so burdensome. Uh, but you acknowledge immigration and workforce; those are connected in some fashion. Oh, unquestionably. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so it may be that one of the answers to the workforce challenges in the energy industry is to come up with some kind of a solution that provides immigrant labor through a door that is better than the door that that labor is going through now. Well, I don't think that conversation is unique to the energy. I think you could pick well, any number said, of industries. Well, ag construction, absolutely, absolutely, all that. Yeah. The second thing is, Mr. Chairman, do we need to have a different conversation than we've been having about climate? You know, you will often hear people in the context of a discussion about energy say to what degree are consumer habits or industry activity contributing to a problem that exists out there as it relates to climate change and what that means for all of us going forward. Right. Is there anything we should be talking about, the carbon uh, uh, use and climate and kind of – should we be having a different conversation than we've been having? I don't know how different it should be. I guess I, really my own comment with there would be is that – we should have any discussions that we feel rel are relevant to have. But is, I, I is, that, to have, is that one? I relevant. want it to, but I would insist in, in having a conversation that it be a, a science-based discussion. You know, there's a whole lot of things that people talk about and and uh, allegations that are made. Uh, I think everyone is open to uh, to having discussions that are based on facts. Tell me where, Chairman. Based. Tell me just tell, okay. I, I mean, I'll take you at your word. Tell me where you are on this issue. You believe in climate science? Do I believe in Climate change, global warming, I, you know, I, I'm not going to completely discount that, you know, we obviously have some impact. There's a footprint uh, that we're all leaving behind here. But to the extent that some may think, I, I don't necessarily buy that. Do you uh, take into consideration the potential impact of industry activity on this conversation around climate when you are looking at legislation or when you're thinking about what industry should do or we, we, should, we should all do in terms of <laughs> consumption habits and everything else? What's the I think we absolutely take that into account. Yeah. And I think it's and, – and by the way, so does industry. Yeah. I mean it's evidenced by the numbers don't lie. When you look at uh, you know, the, the cleaner fuels today than we, we've had yep. uh, you know, ever, uh, when you look at emissions and, and the fact that those are down, and, and I don't have all the percentages in front of me, but I, we could go through a number of things of CO2 and different things like that Indus where numbers would show you that it's down. Yeah, industry is responding to concerns. Absolutely. And they're changing their behavior, which then allows us to change our behavior. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that you're for an any and all, I'm using that phrase, but right. you basically said any and all strategy on energy, including uh, renewables. So you, wind, yes, solar, yes, whatever – Whatever floats your boat. I, I, I'm for any of those things. What I'm not for is artificially uh, propping up any one of those and picking a winner or a loser. I, I think it's important for people to understand, too, again, getting back to this idea that our everyday lives are affected so greatly by the oil and gas industry, is that, you, you know, for those who might say, well, we need to do solar, just solar and just 
uh, you know, wind. Well, you need to realize that that turbine is spinning out there. You can't build that turbine without the oil and gas industry because right. it's made up of products of the oil and gas industry, I don't, so they but, are all related. But, Mr. Chairman, I don't know anybody who's talking about let's get rid of oil and gas and just do wind, right. but there is a discussion about whether helping alternative energy businesses, sources, or that sector is the right thing to do or not. And you've said a couple times on this podcast that you think we shouldn't be picking winners and losers. We shouldn't be investing necessarily at the state level in keeping those alternate energy segments of the energy industry afloat. Well, again, I am for those. I think it's our role to make sure that it's a, a level playing field. You're not for subsidies. For yeah, I'm, not, I'm not for subsidies necessarily. And, and here's what I think has happened over time too. If you go back several years ago, five, 10 years ago, there was a bigger gap than there is today in the right. economics as it relates to that. And to me, that is a perfect example of the market working. We've now gotten to the point where even if you talk to wind and solar folks, they tell you, hey, we can compete. Uh, you know, technology is developed to a point that they yeah. can compete. And so I think that's exactly how it's supposed to work. So, so you know, there's been a lot of chatter about the Texas Public Policy Foundation's position on this of late. There's been some reporting, I think, of the American statesman about this, and there's been some discussion on the street. They refer to the wind subsidy piece of this conversation. Their phrase is a crony crusade. And they note on their website, they have a whole website devoted to this issue, and they note that it, renewable energy subsidies have cost Texans, they say, more than $13 billion dollars. Since 2006, nationally, the production tax credit for renewables cost taxpayers as much as $65 billion through 2029. Now, there's subsidies, but there are also tax breaks. Oil and gas industry enjoys its own help from the government in the form of the high-cost gas exemption. I mean, the fact sure. is there are tax breaks that oil and gas gets. Why are subsidies – I'm just playing the role of jerky journalist here in UBU, okay? We'll all play <laughs> Um, why are subsidies for alternative energy producers bad, but tax breaks for oil and gas companies are good? Well, but there's tax breaks over there, too. I mean, gosh, we're having a discussion right now about renewing uh, 312s and 313s, which are, uh, which are tax breaks, uh, literally, and, and those are largely found in a lot of these wind projects and things like that, too. And so uh, there's enough of it to go around. I, I am not one of those. There are those, and, and you're reading from a group that – Broadly, is just kind of opposed to incentives, period. It does, you name it, incentive. They're just not Well, for I can it. say that they're opposed to these incentives. I'm not sure that they're opposed to the high-cost uh, exemption. Maybe they are. Uh, but, I mean, you know, people have said for years, well, we should look at uh, the tax breaks on the books, tax exemptions on the books. Speaking of looking for revenue that could potentially be diverted to public education and transportation, right. that high-cost gas exemption, that is one that people say, well, that's a billion dollars or some number. I mean, in fact, this has been a discussion for many years. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think I – think Personally, as I look at incentives and things like that, I'm looking at it from a business perspective. And what's that return on that investment? You know, is it ultimately in the long term a benefit uh, to the state? And, and I believe it is. And in, in, in the cases where I've supported those types of things, I mean, I I've got to build a session that deals with inactive wells, which are wells that basically became so marginal that they just get shut in essentially. To try to incentivize folks to put those back into production, even if you're just producing five or ten barrels a day, at least they're producing something. Uh, and the other side of that is that prevents us from having to go back and plug those wells, which a lot of time falls on the railroad commission, costs probably $20,000 a piece to go do that. Right. Uh, that's money there's, that we have. There's a benefit to that. Yeah, absolutely. So we'd rather be producing a little something out of that as well. And so yeah. I, I'm for uh, incentives that ultimately lead to a, a solid return on investment, ultimately for the taxpayers of Texas. But as, but as you said about the wind industry, if you believe that the industry is now on a competitive footing and they no longer need the incentives or the subsidies, then that's the time to – 
stop doing that. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's on to the next challenge. I think the challenge with, with wind in particular, and solar as well, is that uh, it's not as reliable in those peak times as well because the wind blows and the wind doesn't blow. The sun shines and the sun, and the sun stops. Yeah. Sun, I, stop I, I understand that yeah. the sun stops shining <laughs> right. occasionally, right? And so, but you know what? Now we are getting to this point where we start talking about storage or batteries. Right. Uh, we are now getting to the point where we're going to have technology that can address some of those things. So we take full advantage of that resource when the sun is shining, and then it's stored up and it can use to be able to flatten out those peak times. And so you don't, you know, the concern is reliability ultimately right. when you're talking about utilities. How much does consumer behavior or consumer preference factor into this. The fact is, if the, if the public wants alternative energy sources, if the public wants access to solar as an alternative or wind as an alternative, industry presumably responds to consumer demand. Absolutely. I mean, the fact is, your success, whether it's in the journalism business or the energy business, if people are reading what you're publishing or buying what you're selling, then that's a good sign that you're doing the right thing. And if they don't do that or don't want that, then that's not. Right. So the public's, cons the public's behavior in these situations is a determining factor in what industry should do. Absolutely it is. But in many cases, the, the majority of the public makes a lot of those decisions based on their pocketbook. So although they might prefer a, a type of, whether it's when, what, you know, you pick it, uh, if the cost is prohibitive as compared to what the, the yeah, alternative They're going to probably pick yeah, the cheapest Even though source. they might think, you right. know, hey, we think this is better for the environment or whatever the case may be, but right. oh, gosh, it's, it's a little too expensive for me to, yeah. to care that much. I and mean, I think about this in the, in the sense of the kind of gas that goes in your car, right, which is obviously not an immaterial piece of this conversation, right. oil and gas companies. The consumer behavior is moving more in the direction of electric cars or has been moving in that direction, and I think we're probably probably going to continue to head in that direction. And does the change in consumer behavior there have an impact on how industry thinks about its prospects going forward? I mean, we talk a lot about how the gas tax in this country has not been raised in, what, so many years? Early well, you know, 90s. Early 90s. But the fact is that there are many fewer people in situations in cars that ultimately are going to rely on gas. <laughs> Right. I mean, it, right. The, the whole matrix of decision making on this stuff is changing before our eyes. Is it, it not? It absolutely is. And, and it's forcing us also to look at things. Well, you look about electric vehicles. Well, they don't buy gas. And so therefore they don't buy have to pay gas tax, which ultimately helps fund the roads that the electric vehicles drive on as well. And so exactly. we have a challenge before us into how do we embrace, which we're willing to embrace this technology, right. understanding that they need to pay some share uh, yeah. as well. Elon as well. Musk is creating an entire generation of freeloaders <laughs> or free rotors, as the case may be, right? Yeah. It's pretty bad. Uh, what is the price of oil going to be at the end of the year and where we started? Um, you know, I don't know that it's going to be a whole lot different. I mean, obviously, we have a our, our little bit of ups and downs. Now, do, you, do I think it's going to be, you know, take a dive or it's going to shoot to 100? No, I, I don't think that at all. I think, I think we've now gotten to a point where the market is fairly stable. Uh, you know, obviously there's there's factors that, you know, whether it's global or uh, political or yeah. any number of things that uh, something could get tweeted tomorrow that uh, <laughs> that Can't causes imagine who you're talking about. Yeah, could get, right. you know, cause some ripple there. But, you know, overall that the market is resilient. Industry is uh, in it for the long haul. I think you see that with the investments that are being made, billions and billions of dollars in infrastructure. When you look at what's happening in our ports and uh, in the midstream area with our pipelines, uh, all of that activity, the export facilities where people are spending billions of dollars to build these LNG export uh, facilities, uh, the market's in it for the long haul, and that's because they, they see a very bright future for this industry. And so stability and predictability, whether you're in the capital or you're in the uh, oil fields of the Permian, 
is a good thing. Absolutely. And it allows us as a state, as we budget and rely on revenues generated from the industry, predictability is an especially good thing because if we're looking to oil and gas to solve some of our challenges, whether it's transportation or education, it'd be good to know that they're going to be there to do it. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, because, you know, fixing education or fixing roads is not a, a short-term uh, project. That is a forever project. And so we need to have to make sure that we have the revenue there to support that. Okay. Well, fortunately, this is not a forever podcast. So, <laughs> Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. Well, thank you for your time. All right. Happy Easter. All right. You as well. You've been listening to Point of Order proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, State Representative Chris Patty, and thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Encore, Duke Energy, and the Advanced Power Alliance. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 86th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith.